Our passage this morning that we will be uh, spending time with is uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We are continuing in our series in James. This is week three of uh, this this series that we began a couple weeks ago. And uh, this morning, again, our passage, it's it's printed for you in your bulletins. Uh, If you have your Bibles, hopefully you're looking at the page in front of you. Uh, But let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word from James 2, beginning at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. A memory I have growing up is going over to my dad's desk and amidst a whole bunch of office supplies he had this pretty impressive tool that I vividly remember it was a gold-plated embosser Do you guys know what an embosser is I think a lot of kids don't know what an embosser is so instead of a stamp where you have ink that imprints a page you put the piece of paper into this lever you pull it and then the paper itself is transformed I don't know why you need an embosser, but it was cool, and it left an impression on me. Thank you. Okay, thank you. (laughs) I wrote that stupid joke. It's there. It's there. I'm glad it worked, though. The book of James. There you go. There's a transition. The book of James is looking at an embossed life. What does a life look like? when the gospel is imprinted on you, when the person and work of Jesus is planted on you, right? You're transformed, just like that piece of paper. It's better than a stamp image, isn't it? Because you're the piece of paper, and all of a sudden, you have been impacted. You have been born by God's will and word. You are embossed. And so what does that look like? Well, last week, that's what it looked like, right? Just, just, you know, this isn't comprehensive, but it looks like speech is transformed. It looks like we have a concern for the needy and the vulnerable, and it looks like we are pursuing holiness. In other words, we're imprinted with the image of Christ. 
We're imprinted with the character of God. And so we are to become more and more like him. That's what it means to grow. This week, James gives us this case study on favoritism. Now, it's remarkable because we might not think that favoritism is that big a deal. I mean, I'm going to spend an entire sermon on the topic of partiality and favoritism. Uh, We live very finite lives. We only hear so many sermons in our lives, and yet we are going to spend time on this one particular issue. I think it's helpful because one of the themes of James as a whole and as a book is the seriousness with which we are to think about sin And just how destructive it is. Even a sin like favoritism. Partiality. And so verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. The word here in the Greek is literally to take someone at their face. Partiality. It's looking at someone's appearance and interacting them only based on that. It's treating people by their rank and importance. It's to be a respecter of persons, as Scripture puts it elsewhere. And it might be, and I think this is where James is going, it might be that this kind of test case of favoritism is an application of everything we looked at last week. Because to show partiality involves using our words poorly. Think things like flattery, or maybe we're judgmental, we're critical with our speech. It involves attending to the needy and vulnerable, And it also is making sure the world is not determining our value system. The world values the rich. The world does not value the poor. Are you being stained by the world with the preferences that you are exhibiting? I'm guessing the majority of us have been on the wrong end of favoritism. Maybe a youth sports team. We knew what it was like to always have the coach's son play the position that we really wanted to play. Or maybe we've experienced favoritism in the workplace or in the classroom. And so the fact that we've all experienced it, we all know the inherent injustice of favoritism. The injustice of partiality. And yet here's the thing. Uh, As much as maybe 21st century Westerners, we go, of course that's wrong. Of course it's wrong to discriminate. And, And frankly, I hope we all feel it's wrong to discriminate. It's not obvious. Historically, globally, this is not self-evident at all. If you look at the history of the world, if you look at different cultures and different religions, you'll see that people have always created hierarchies of value among peoples. You have cultures that create caste systems, whereby your value is determined by your clan or your family. You can read portions of the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, who says, listen guys, it's obvious some human beings are born to be slaves, Some human beings are born to be masters. The fact that 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 may strike us as odd, I would argue, is just a reminder of how much of Christianity has come into the general culture, has provided so much of the philosophical underpinnings. And James is part of the voice that gives us that reality. James will remind us in our passage today that the way the gospel shapes our community, uh, in particular when it comes to showing favoritism, this seemingly minor sin isn't because it has devastating consequences to how you treat others, that's really important, and also what it means about your own heart and why you are someone who would be partial. So three points this morning that we will look at. The first is the prevalence of partiality. You could just say prevalence is everywhere, or partiality is everywhere. Prevalence of partiality. Secondly, the problem with partiality. 
Some of the problems are obvious. I'm going to talk about the theological problems of partiality. And then third, where do we find the power to overcome it? So the prevalence problem and the power to overcome partiality. First of all, the prevalence of it. It's everywhere. All right, so James begins his look at favoritism by telling this memorable little story. We have this illustration that drives home the point, right? It's, it, it's memorable. It's great. A, a, a guy walks in wearing a gold ring, fine clothing. He comes into your assembly. A poor man in shabby clothing comes in. You pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing. You say, sit here. Sit in the good place. And you go to the poor man and you say, you can sit at my feet. Just stay out of the way. What's the problem? You made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. What's the context? Pretty clear, right? Church service. Church service, two strangers come in. One guy is dressed to the tens, right? He's, he, he drives the nice car. He looks expensive. <laughs> and so you come to him and you say, you, you sit in the best seat. It's not the front row, right? Front row people, you don't sit him in the front row. You go right in the middle, a couple rows back. You say, that's, that's, your, that's your seat right there. The poor guy comes in and you say, just like stay out of the way. Maybe if we have a seat for you, 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 can, just, you can go over there. But obviously, it's a, it's a great illustration. Uh, one of the reasons it's so great is, think about this. James is writing in a completely different world. You, you, can, you can think like that, right? Um, different culture, different time. And yet, this illustration from 2,000 years ago rings true, doesn't it? 2,000-year-old illustration, and it might as well have been written yesterday because all of us can understand exactly what's going on in this situation. We can all relate to it. We can all know what it's like to show that kind of partiality. This illustration emphasizes there is an injustice in this community if we act like this. When we make distinctions like this one based on appearances, we are, James says, judges with evil thoughts. It's a Jewish idiom for basically like a judge who takes bribes. We are unjust judges. Why? Why is this such a temptation for us? Why can we relate to this illustration in the way that we can? Let's break it down. I'll suggest three reasons, three kind of interweaving, interlocking temptations and struggles that we have as human beings. The first one, the rich guy, the poor guy come in. What's, what's our struggle? What's the temptation? Greed. Greed's part of it. A rich guy comes in. Maybe we're thinking, hmm, I can gain from this person. This person's wealth or power or success could, could be a benefit to me, and therefore I want to honor him or her. This person can do something for me, and that's the most important attribute of anyone that comes into my life. What can you do for me? Simple greed. Second reason, besides greed, uh, we have pride. We see them as contributing something to the group that I'm a part of. Their presence bolsters our status by this kind of person. And, and I should have said this earlier. Who do we favor in our society? Who, who cuts to the front of the VIP lines in the culture that we live in? It's still the rich. It's the successful. It's the talented. It's the beautiful. So by that kind of person being associated with us, our reputation gets a boost. And boy, do we see this in our day. It's not a new thing. I can give you countless examples historically, but it's just such a, a, a pull in the American evangelical church. We want celebrities. The first hint we have of a celebrity converting, it is like throw out the red carpet. We need this person to be in our group. They bring luster. They bring flashiness. Maybe they bring credibility. They bring street cred to what we're doing. James says, 
It's always been that way. Another reason besides pride and greed is selfishness. And again, they're all kind of related. It's, it's, it's part of what can this person do for me, but maybe it's also, does this person need something from me because I don't have the time or the energy or the willingness to give it? We want strength, not weakness. Now here's the thing. James is writing to first century ethnically Jewish Christians. For the most part, we are completely safe in assuming that by and large, these were not wealthy people. These were poor people. This was a religious minority in a culture that was overwhelmingly stratified, where partiality ruled the day. As obvious as it is for us that we should not discriminate, I would argue in the first century, uh, the obvious thing would be, of course you discriminate. What kind of idiot doesn't discriminate? And so James is writing to this poor culture A rich guy walks into your synagogue. He walks into your church, and what do you see? You see opportunity. You see financial well-being. You see stability. You see what a blessing if this rich guy stays. And James says, if you treat that guy better than the poor guy, you are an unjust community. Partiality is everywhere. And that makes sense when we think of the reasons why our fallen hearts lean that way. Selfishness, greed, pride, all of those things we wrestle with. Our second point, what's the problem with partiality? And you could see there are plenty of problems in that first point, but let's take it a, a little bit deeper, looking at the theological errors of partiality. There are two problems with partiality. One's a glory problem. Secondly, it's a love problem. It's a glory problem, it's a love problem. First of all, the glory problem. Rich guy comes in. And he receives honor. The people are showing him a kind of glory, right? They're recognizing a kind of glory in him. This guy, just by nature of looking expensive, he is worthy of special treatment. But this is a glory that is shaped by the values of the world, is it not? We're to be unstained by the world and shaped by God's kingdom. And so to honor the rich and dismiss the poor, does that at all sound like the kingdom of Jesus? Does that at all fit that embossed reality that we have. No. No. Notice how James began the section in verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's only the second time that James has even talked about Jesus, and here he identifies him as the Lord of glory. We should, we should take notice of that. We should listen. Why is he bringing up Jesus at this point? Why does he call him the Lord of glory? Well, he's intentionally setting the glory of the world and the glory of Jesus at odds with one another. The simple question is that when we despise the poor and when we esteem the rich, what value system are you operating under? Because the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He did not consider equality with something, as something to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant, taking to himself our nature, taking to himself our sin, and taking to himself our curse. James continues in verses 5 through 6. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
Who can use any legal system in any culture? It's only those who have money. That's who you want to flirt with? What's James saying? Ordinarily, the way the world works is that those who recognize their poverty, who understand the depths of their needs, those are the kinds of people who respond to God in faith. It's not that God opposes the rich because they're rich. By the way, everyone in this room, for the most part, the majority of people in this room, the majority of the people in this room, we are the rich. Globally, right? Statistically, we are the affluent. I'd much rather live middle class in 2022 than be the wealthiest human being in the first century. I love plumbing. We are the wealthy. We are the wealthy. It's not that God opposes the rich because they are rich. It's that, and this has always been true, the rich must humble themselves to know their poverty. They have to know their need. Those who are rich and powerful and successful have to get small. More often than not, the rich don't get small, and so they oppose the kingdom of God. And this makes sense. Money is the most compelling and powerful rival to the living God. It provides the things that God provides, security, pleasure, and identity, and it provides glory. So first of all, the problem with partiality is a glory problem. Who's, who's defining your, your value system? Who's, where are you placing your glory? What are we impressed with? But that's not all. Secondly, it's a love problem. The key to this discussion is, is in verses 8 through 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Love that fails to treat another person as we would want to be treated, pretty simple, it's a failure of the golden rule. A way of following Jesus that favors the strong and the rich and the beautiful the, the powerful, the successful, it just doesn't make sense. And James reminds us of such a crucial point here. We can't miss this. This is so important. Is that law and love are seamlessly and beautifully integrated and united. That's where James goes. From love to the law, verses 10 and 11. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. He goes back and forth, law and love, love and law. If love is the fulfillment of the law, and it is, then you can't pretend to be a moral person, a religious person, a holy person who says you observe God's law and you care about holiness, but you're indifferent to those who are inconvenient. You're indifferent to those who have nothing to offer. You're indifferent to those who take up our time and energy and resources. So James gives helpful insight into how we think about the law. It's all about love, love of God and love of neighbor, and they are completely married, completely intertwined. I love this illustration that, that Daniel Doriani gives uh, about James and this understanding of how we break God's law at one point. He, he, he gives the illustration of we, we normally think of, of God's law and our response to it as we stack up our good deeds of obedience. We have a pile of obedience we stack up. Well, what happens when we sin? We remove the piles, right? And so we're always, at the end of the day, this is the human impulse. At the end of the day, is my pile of righteous deeds more than my pile of, of unrighteous deeds or sins. But that's not what James is saying at all. James is saying that the law is like a sheet of immaculate glass. And disobedience in whatever form is like a brick that's tossed through the, through, through the glass. One destructive act shatters the whole. So God's law, not like piles of good deeds, but this perfect immaculate piece of glass 
our sins, bricks that just shatter the glass. If you fail at one point, you are guilty of breaking all of it. To say otherwise would say that sin is not destructive. To say otherwise would be that sin um, perhaps is, is not the, the, the life that leads to devastation and, and that, that breaks apart unity and peace and, and everything that we know about the devastation and destructiveness of sin. But if sin really is that destructive, then, then any brick going through that window shatters it. This is not the same thing as saying all sins are equal. That does not even make sense to say that all sins are equal. I would much rather have you hate me than murder me. God would rather you hate me than murder me. Think of the sanction for murder and think of the sanction for hate. No, absolutely not. It's not to say the same thing. It is to say, though, if you break the law at a single point, you are guilty before God. So remember what James is doing in this letter. He's describing the mature flourishing Christian life. I use the language, he, this is the Christian life in technicolor. And he's saying that the mature believer grows in becoming a better lover of his or her neighbor. And I'll be frank, I don't think I've ever heard Christian maturity described in that way. Growing in becoming a better lover of his or her neighbor. Because we're growing in our ability to see the image of God in everyone. Are we able to see the glory of the person who has nothing to offer from the very fact that they have the dignity of being endowed with God's image? In verse 12, James writes that self-serving love will bring judgment and so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We will be judged by the law that brings freedom. Another way of saying this is that the law is used to reveal who actually are trusting in the gospel. The law shows and guides us as those who are poor and needy and yet recipients of God's love and acceptance how to live a life of freedom as we love others. The flip side of this, especially when it comes to that sin of partiality, is it's to live in bondage. What kind of person favors the successful and the rich and the beautiful? An insecure person. A person who needs someone else to provide them security and an identity. Oh, we have something better, James is, is helping us to see. We have a secure position of belonging where we are free to treat all people as they are. Image bearers. Full of dignity. And so are we welcoming to them as a church. As Christians in the world... As kids in school, I mean, I remember just viscerally uh, when, you're, when you're in high school or maybe you're in middle school and you are, you are looking at people saying, will you bring credibility to my group of friends? Will we project the correct image? And James is saying, oh, that's toxic. That's a dark, that's a dark heart. That, that, that follows that way. No, there's freedom in, in being approved by God. James talks about being judged by our own standard. What, what is that? Well, in the end, are we enough? Are we rich enough? Are we good enough? Are we successful enough? Are we beautiful enough? And the answer is no. But thanks be to God who shows no partiality and in whom we find mercy and that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's our final point. That's where we're gonna go. We're going to look at that mercy, which is the power to overcome partiality, favoritism. And this is where James ends. 
Last verse, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Those who show mercy reveal that they have received mercy. And it's these kinds of mercy-receiving people who will triumph over judgment. I think that's what James is saying. I'll say it again. Those who show mercy reveal that they have received mercy. And these kinds of mercy-receiving people, those are the ones who will triumph over judgment. It's those who have received mercy and whose lives, therefore, take the shape of mercy. And so how do we become the kind of people who first know and then show this kind of mercy? I'll tell you what, you go back to James chapter 1, verse 1. You become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to James chapter 2, verse 1. You become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. You constantly ask and evaluate, how does the Lordship of Jesus impact where, where I am finding glory and where I'm finding value? How does Jesus help to find love for you? Because he was no respecter of persons, but treated every human being as an image bearer who had dignity and value. Those who are healthy and those who are sick, those who are old and those who are young, men and women, Jew and Gentile, righteous and, and, and the sinner of sinners and, and rich and poor, he dismantled everything that divides us into groups. He didn't love a particular kind of person in some self-giving, self-serving way, asking, what can you do for me? He loved his neighbor as himself. He confronted and judged in his own flesh the partiality that defines the world. I think that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians. The dividing walls of hostility that we put up have come down. Negatively, Jesus confronted partiality as he confronted the Pharisees because they were consumed with status and power and riches. And because he confronted their idols, they hated him. He exposed the oppression of their self-righteous traditions. Surely that contributed to his death. Sent to the cross where he bore our sins and received the hatred of man and he bore the wrath of God and yet rose again from the dead to offer mercy to all who would receive him. One of the turning points in redemptive history is in Acts chapter 10. You have the apostle Peter who has this vision of a sheet of both clean and unclean animals. These are the dietary restrictions of the Jewish law. And so Peter, who is faithful, who has not had one unclean thing touch his lips, is all of a sudden told, you got to take and eat. And Peter is so horrified by this, but comes to understand, his conclusion is, truly God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. God doesn't show partiality to those who look a certain way or are from a particular class or family. Anyone who receives him receives mercy. And that's the mission that we've been called to. How do we embrace this mission of mercy? First thing is that we have to become poor. We have to shed all of those things where we might think we are rich. We have to shed those things where we find an identity that leads to discrimination. We have to shed the priority of our ethnicity, the priority of our culture, our sex, status, education, place we're from, people we know. We have to hold them loosely. At times, we will have to let go of them altogether so that we can fall upon the mercy of God in Christ and cling to him. 
We have to let go of those identity markers. They no longer define us and shape how we relate to others. We stop living for greedy gain because in Christ we have been made rich and have been welcomed into God's family. We have been given a name. I mean, that's the tragedy of the story, isn't it? The rich man and the poor man comes in and it's as as if God is asking, what am I withholding from you that you need? Because you're acting like I'm withholding from you something that you need. And that's the word I want to close with. You have an honorable name. If you are in Christ, you have an honorable name. You have a glory. Not because uh, you merely bear God's image, which is incredible in itself, but rather you have also been called as a child of God. You belong to him. That is what empowers us to recognize the image of God in other people. That's what frees us to start admitting and seeing the ways that we can show favoritism and to repent and turn from those ways. Intentionally, not intentionally, it doesn't matter to turn from those ways because Jesus loved indiscriminately so we too must live with no partiality. Why? Because we've been embossed. We bear that shape. To love those like us and to love those not like us. To seek the good of the other even when it costs knowing that Jesus paid it all for us, the undeserving, so that our judgment would be covered by his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded in in looking at such a specific issue such a specific problem that manifests itself in in every generation. We're reminded of what it means to, to live out of the story of the gospel, of what it means to live out of the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. That with Peter, we are full recipients of, of, of the reality that, God, you show no partiality. So may we reflect that indiscriminate heart of God. May we bear forth the message of of Jesus who rose again so that all would be saved who rely on him in mercy. That we would confess that that Catholic faith for every quadrant of the earth, for every ethnicity, for men, for women, for children, that we would bear forth the reality that we would live with integrity that Jesus is Lord of all. God, would you help us to do that? Would your spirit reveal the places where we hold on to favoritism? Uh, would, would your spirit reveal to us the places that we go to, to 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 remain comfortable when you have called us to be that welcoming community? Lord, would we, would we be faithful with this task as those who are embossed with the beautiful reality of Christ and his gospel. And we pray this in his name. Amen.